Welcome back to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. The historiography of the late Ottoman Middle East tends to emphasize Ottoman relations and conflicts with European neighbors. And just the same, the historiography of the world economy, global capitalism and trade, finds its center mainly in the West during the 19th century. But in this episode, we're looking in a completely different direction. We're going to be focusing on the Indian Ocean from the late 18th century onward. And in particular, we're looking at the interconnected worlds of the Arabian Peninsula and the Swahili coast of East Africa where we'll explore modern systems of finance and exchange unfolding within the frameworks of Islamic law. guest on the program is my University of Virginia colleague, Fahad Ahmed Bishara. Fahad, welcome to the program. Lovely to be here, Chris. Uh, Fahad is Assistant Professor of History. Uh, he's got his PhD from Duke University, and he's got a new book out entitled A Sea of Debt, Law and Economic Life in the Western Indian Ocean, 1780 to 1950. That's out from Cambridge University Press. Congratulations Thank on the you. publication. Thank you. It's a, it's a year old now, so it feels like old news. Well, but, it's still uh, fresh. Uh, 34.99 Amazon.com. Uh, take the opportunity to... Well, I don't see any of the money, so I don't care if you buy it or not. <laughs> <laughs> well, we are, we are going to encourage our listeners who enjoy the conversation to check out Fahad's book, but we're even going to take things a little broader. We're going to pull out some of the um, important conclusions from that book and actually, in addition, more generally, talk about uh, the very underexplored subject of capitalism in the Indian Ocean world uh, from a perspective other than the dominant paradigm of looking at the British Empire and Portuguese and Dutch empires. And so, Fahad, I guess that's where we can start off our conversation. The Indian Ocean actually figures quite prominently in the history of the world economy, in the history of uh, global commerce, in the history of capitalism. But we're usually talking about European trade corporations and the imperial entanglements uh, that they induced. And so there's a lot less on the local actors uh, from uh, the Indian Ocean region, uh, and how they contributed to uh, the formation of modern finance and exchange. Our Ottomanist followers out there will know that there are even there's even scholarship suggesting that Islamic law and you know non-European legal systems and cultural fr- frameworks were simply incompatible with the development of capitalism. So why don't you just tell us briefly why that's wrong and why that's uh, a limited framework for understanding uh, the history of global capitalism? Well, I mean, it's wrong uh, simply because uh, the evidence tells us otherwise. You go you go out uh, into these different archives and you're going to be confronted with all sorts of different contracts that people hold on to, all sorts of different financial instruments that they've held on to. Uh, and when one uh, moves beyond the, um, the sort of the colonial archive, the sort of standard uh, standard uh, repositories in, say, um, Delhi or London, Mm -hmm. Uh, or even when one looks a little bit closer in any one of those places, you'll see that the sort of the paper world of the bazaar is quite present, and there are lots and lots of different forms that people engage in. And so the question then has to be, well, what are are people... What are people using these forms for? If if it's so obsolete and if everything is so behind, then how come we're still seeing so much of it in the 19th century? And then when 
you go and you read other sort of genres of legal writing, of course, mm-hmm. uh, fatawa, you see that people are asking all sorts of questions about these, and there's a there's a dynamic conversation going on. And so surely we can't just dismiss that altogether and say, well, it's not important. It's important. Dismissing it because it doesn't meet our uh, standard conceptions of what 19th century capitalism looks like is being a bit unfair to the material and not taking it very seriously uh, on its face. Yeah, and I think we'll return to that point later on in our conversation after talking about some of uh, your research. But I want to sort of start out by establishing uh, a view of that world of the bazaar, the Indian Ocean world during the 18th and 19th centuries, uh, and sort of just what a historical narrative centered on the Western Indian Ocean during this time looks like. I mean, so you have the standard narrative, the received narrative of what the Western Indian Ocean looks like in the 19th century, which is that it's a British lake, right? Mm -hmm. The Europeans, the British specifically, have uh, effectively squeezed out any uh, imperial competition in the Indian Ocean, have made all of the local polities subservient to it, and have uh, sort of reformulated the economic landscape essentially to meet the needs of an industrial elite in Manchester or, you know, and, and their partners in, yeah. uh, in London. It, it's, a, it's a pretty simplistic narrative, actually. And it flattens a lot of what's going on in the Indian Ocean because uh, actually once one moves away from, uh, from India and arguably, uh, quite arguably, in India as well, uh, what you see is that there is a very active uh, community of uh, merchants, Indian merchants, Arab merchants, uh, merchants from other parts of the Indian Ocean, who are active in uh, in finance uh, in a lot of different sectors, sectors that you don't actually see European capital in in any meaningful way. Hmm. Uh, so thinking about the the uh, the pearl dive in the Gulf, for example, mm-hmm. uh, thinking about the date trade in uh, or the, the the farming and financing of of dates in South uh, South Arabia, uh, even coffee production in Yemen, and then once you get into East Africa, ivory, cloves, all of these different commodities that are being produced, that yes, ultimately. Uh, do make their way into European markets as well. Right. Um, but they're not principally financed by Europeans at all. They're actually principally financed by Indians mm-hmm. uh, and Arabs uh, Arabs as well. And so there's a, a vibrant uh, regional economy um, that uh, far from being uh, subsumed within a global capitalist economy uh, is actually transformed by um, their integration into sort of global markets and take on... One might say it's a second or or third wind. Uh, really, uh, there's a, there's a whole new impetus for for production and uh, for finance. And when you say a second or a third wind, that's because even prior to sort of the circling of of Africa by European explorers, there was already an interconnected uh, Indian Ocean uh, economy and world that sort of this transoceanic trade facilitated by monsoon winds and all of that story. There's been some work on that. There, there's a recognition among scholars that the Indian Ocean economy is a very old one, right? We have accounts of it from the first century AD uh, that point to the connections between different port cities in the Indian Ocean, the famous Periplus. Certainly from the sort of rise of Islam onwards, we see the makings of an interconnected uh, sort of uh, regional economy. The monsoon winds, all of these natural phenomena uh, facilitate uh, transoceanic uh, exchange. The question principally has been, well, what does the arrival of the Europeans mean? And 
I think with every generation of Indian Ocean historians uh, or historians of Asia, um, there has been a tendency to pronounce the death and revival of of Asian the world of Asian trade. First with the Portuguese, and then it was the Dutch, and then it was with the English. So it's always the Indian Ocean is dead, long live the Indian Ocean. Uh, and I suppose I'm just adding my voice to the chorus and saying, with, I mean, alongside uh, scholars who have already established the 19th century as a time of uh, a vibrant uh, commercial exchange. I couldn't have possibly imagined this work without the reading the work of, say, Shugata Bose, uh, Rajat Kantare, Thomas Metcalf, and others, who really paved the way for the rest of us to say, look, the 19th century uh, is not some sort of derivative sphere. Uh, 19th century Indian Ocean is not some derivative sphere of global capitalism. It's a vibrant sphere in and of itself. And for our listeners who really are new to the subject, we've got a bonus conversation up on our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, in which we talk about Oman, of course, Oman being a country in the modern day Arabian Peninsula, and its connections to the Indian Ocean world um, through uh, the Sultanate uh, of Oman. We're going to delve deeper into the legal and economic world of both the Sultanate of Oman and the broader uh, Indian Ocean world as we talk about Fahed's study in just a bit. But first, we're going to pause for a quick music break, so please stay tuned. Welcome back to the Ottoman History Podcast for our conversation on Islamic law and commerce in the Indian Ocean. I'm Chris Grayton here with Fahad Bishara. Uh, We're talking about some of the research from his new book called A Sea of Debt, Law and Economic Life in the Western Indian Ocean, 1780 to 1950 from Cambridge University Press. So Fahad, we just set the stage for sort of rethinking uh, the economic history of the Indian Ocean world and and how it was connected uh, during the 18th and 19th centuries, and and also emphasized um, the importance of looking beyond the the predominance of European empires during that time. Um, So I want to get into some questions about, you know, the heart of your study, uh, A Sea of Debt, and actually ask about that title, uh, A Sea of Debt, uh, and also your description of the Indian Ocean as a geography of obligation um, uh, in your study. Could you elaborate upon what you mean by these images and metaphors and sort of uh, what that refers to? Thinking back to my answer to the the first question and saying that uh, in the 19th century, you have a sort of a renewed uh, impetus for commercial activity, a new, renewed impulse of commercial activity with integration into uh, global markets. Um, as a part of that, you have a recognition amongst uh, particular actors in the Indian Ocean, that these opportunities are there uh, and that they ought to be able to take advantage of them. And so, um, I mean, the Omanis, whom I focused the the book around, uh, mm-hmm. the the from a group of Arabs from South southeastern Arabia, who over the course of the 1600s and 1700s extend their control over East Africa and other ports in the Indian Ocean uh, in various ways and at various sort of depths. By the uh, late 1700s, which is when the book really takes off, uh, the Omani Sultan, mm-hmm. Sultan bin Ahmed and then his son Sa'id bin Sultan, they, uh, they recognize that, uh, that there are economic opportunities that exist out there. 
and um, their trading partners, their principal sort of financiers, uh, who are uh, Gujarati Indian merchants from uh, from the some specific port cities in Kutch, who are Hindus, uh, are also quite keen on capturing these uh, these opportunities in East Africa, and so it's in the uh, the ivory trade um, mm-hmm. that they recognize that uh, very early on that there are. Um, that there's wealth to be to be captured and to sort of to be generated and the trade in ivory uh, from East Africa to India and from India onwards to to Europe and elsewhere and of course in the 1800s this really um, this really takes off uh, and then expands into other sectors uh, other sectors in the Indian Ocean experience a boom during this time it starts off with East African ivory and then it becomes uh, the emergence of you see the emergence of a plantation economy on the east coast of Africa principally cloves become the mm-hmm. The major export from from uh, Zanzibar Island and and neighboring islands, uh, but then in the Persian Gulf you also see pearls, uh, dates, all these things. So why a sea of debt? Well, uh, for all of these uh, these activities to take place, there needs to be finance, uh, and Indian merchants. Uh, and to a much lesser extent, Arab merchants, often in partnership with Indian merchants, rush to fill in these gaps. Um, rush to extend uh, credit to planters, to uh, prospective uh, caravan leaders and things like that, uh, and bind them in relations of debt, relationships. And debt doesn't really capture, capture it. Debt is a very evocative term, but obligation is a, is a much... Um, uh, is a much more robust way of thinking about it because these are actually quite robust relationships that they have, uh, um, relationships of economic mutualism that uh, replicate themselves over the course of uh, lifespans and then over the course of uh, generations, uh, binding uh, producer, quote-unquote producer, to uh, sort of middleman uh, and then forwarding these goods on to partners in India and then to sort of markets in, in Europe and the United States and elsewhere. So the idea is that this social world of the Western Indian Ocean is sort of bound together by financial obligation to one, to one another, uh, mutually agreed upon terms of uh, sustained uh, exchange, debt yes. and uh, credit. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and the notion of obligation, I borrow here from... Uh, Craig Muldrew's work on England, early modern England, Economy of Obligation, which is a terrific work and everybody listening should should read it. But uh, the notion is that we we can't imagine these uh, these migrations um, to uh, to East Africa and elsewhere, or these forms of economic activity taking place as as you know occurring within a quote unquote market uh, because. Uh, it's not like these these people are producing uh, these goods or you know going in and hunting elephants for ivory and things like that with just a general sense of that there might be a market out there. Mm-hmm. No, they're 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 asked to do these things. They're asked to plant right. these things. They're asked to go out and collect these things, and they're financed to do these things, and they're bound together in relationships of sort of debt and credit, relationships of obligation. So we might imagine these social worlds as being grounded in matrices of, of, uh, of rights and obligations. Um, and that opens then the door to thinking about sort of finance law and all of these other matters that the book takes on. Right. And, and while commerce always has by, it has to be flexible, there has to be an ad hoc dimension to it. I think what's really fascinating uh, is how Islamic law sort of in your work is, is provides a framework uh, for formalizing 
these uh, types of exchange, even as they're transforming, uh, as we'll talk about in just a bit. But I, I wanted to offer you a chance to talk a little bit about uh, the sources you've already mentioned or alluded to. You know, I mean, I, 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 I'm, I'm not an economic historian, and and I hate legal economic documents. Like doing my taxes is like a nightmare <laughs> to me. Getting reimbursed for stuff is like an endless headache for me. These are. I don't enjoy the bureaucratic affects of like financial institutions and law. So I'm, I'm curious about, uh, you know, your sources. They, they have to be a lot of these dry kind of uh, and sometimes opaque uh, financial documents. So, you know, just let our listeners know, like, why are these at all interesting for history? Like, why should we be excited <laughs> about receipts and stuff like that? Look, let me, let me, let me make it clear. I never went out in search of contracts and financial instruments. And like you, I was totally turned off uh, by the idea of working with these very sort of mundane documents. I was hoping to find the very vibrant things um, that good historians like Sebu Haslanian and others have found uh, letters, right? right. Uh, this is the stuff where the you know social life really uh, reveals itself in in the most sort of dynamic and and colorful of ways. The truth is that stuff just wasn't out there, uh, and so I had to contend with the fact that very few people held on to letters, and most people held on to these uh, ostensibly very boring uh, debt deeds. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know what started off as a trickle um, of uh, of contracts and dead deeds in Bahrain and Muscat uh, became a, uh, I don't know what, what's like uh, the, the next sort of order of trickle, like a, a river really, yeah. uh, by the time, an ocean, <laughs> by the time, by the time we get to, we got, I got to East Africa and you saw this stuff just everywhere and it became impossible to ignore it. Like I said, on the face of it, it's not interesting material. It's incredibly dry, repetitive, formulaic. Um, when you dig into individual documents, you see there are a lot of uh, idiosyncrasies that make it sort of interesting. What are people transacting in? What sort of security are they offering up? When they talk about the properties, who are their neighbors, things like that. Stuff that you know the social historian might actually find incredibly interesting. Um, but for me, uh, somebody who was interested in questions of Islamic law, and we can talk about um, what I mean by that later. It it was interesting to me that that all of, just the very existence of these documents uh, on all of these contracts that drew on uh, Islamic legal forms um, was it, it posed all sorts of questions about well, what what are these documents here for? Why do people use them anyway? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it opened up a pathway for thinking about the relationship between economic and legal history in ways that is neither economic nor legal history in its sort of purest form. And I'll, I'll make it clear, I never considered myself, nor, nor do I consider myself even today to be an economic historian. I, don't, I think economic history is a, is a very different uh, beast. And what uh, I, I'm very, very clear uh, in the book when I say that this is a legal history of economic life. Uh, it's not an economic history as such. And what, you know, this trail of, of documents that you unearth kind of reveals is that people kept them because they were invested in them, invested in, you know, what they represented in terms of their, like, financial life, but also they were invested in the, in the legal concepts 
uh, embodied by the documents that make those contracts uh, meaningful and uh, worth keeping. Uh, we'll mention for the listeners real quick that on our website, autumnhistorypodcast.com, we've got a picture of a couple such documents, and some of them are pretty interesting looking. They often involve translation uh, between different languages, multiple languages on the same page. Virtually every document that you see uh, is going to involve both Arabic and Gujarati, uh, simply because of the nature the sort of, uh, of the linguistic communities that we're talking about here. The Arabic that you see sometimes when you read it, uh, sort of Swahili uh, nouns and uh, expressions creep into them. And uh, at other times you see English as well, and it, it's, uh, which poses all sorts of interesting questions in and of itself. Right, especially as um, you know, European traders are getting more involved, uh, uh, more intimately involved, let's say, in the economic life of the Indian Ocean world. And yet... Um, as you point out in your work, all of these legal instruments, um, you know, kind of have their origins uh, uh, in Islamic terminology and Islamic law. Yeah. Maybe you can talk more about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's principally what uh, I imagined the book as doing, to be honest with you. Uh, I, look, there's, there was a notion swirling around the economic history of the Islamic world generally, but uh, the sort of the history of the Indian Ocean world more specifically that, well, Muslim merchants um, uh, do business according to Islamic law. Well, that doesn't actually tell us anything. You know, Islamic law is not uh, the answer here. It's the question. Like, what is, what do we even mean by that, right? Right. And there's a tendency in the literature on uh, Islamic legal history to assume that there's a uh, stability of forms, especially when it comes to commerce, right? Mm. People are, you know, have done tremendous work in Islamic uh and Islamic studies of a three thinking sort of the, the dynamism of Islamic law, but when it comes to the commercial world, for some some reason or another, people haven't really taken it incredibly seriously, with some exceptions. And this material that I was confronted with was um, it it posed it posed incredibly interesting questions to me. Uh, first, we saw the the actual the texture of of transactions in the Indian Ocean. Immediately, we are confronted with the materiality of what Islamic law is, right? When we say, oh, Islamic law holds together the Indian Ocean world of trade. Well, here it is. It's right in front of you. Uh, except that it looks nothing like Islamic law as we understand it, right? The, there are terms that appear in these documents um, that look like uh, they fit within the standard menu of Islamic contracts that we all know, sales, uh, rahins, pledges, things like that, stuff that uh, most historians are, are, at least of the, the Ottoman world, are going to be familiar with. Uh, but then there are all sorts of different transactions that creep in that uh, we can't account for in the standard menu, um, the, the khiyar sale, which we can talk about later. Um, but then also... Um, the uh, the notion of sale itself and what sale is doing, how they imagine property is working, all of these things, it's clear, are being rethought during this moment, mm -hmm. um, but still being grounded in uh, the lexicon of Islamic law. And so it's thinking about Islamic law as a language for trade rather than as a set uh, menu of institutions and contracts for engaging in trade. A framework that has a history, that has agreed upon terminology and terms, but that also lends itself to flexibility uh, due to the changing times and the changing nature of, of what's being transacted. Absolutely. Uh, look, and when one reads these sorts of documents against 
uh, fatawa from from the period uh, that and you see that you know fatawa from the Indian Ocean during this time people are actually asking questions about these sorts of transactions so there's a dynamic conversation that's taking place about what's possible and what's impossible and how do we make the impossible possible uh, in in this new world of commerce how do we capture opportunity how do we experiment with contracts and the the way these the Q and A of the fatawa is phrased, it's clear that people are already doing these things by the time they bring them to the mufti. It's then up to the mufti to figure out how we then take this world of transactions and ground them or shroud them in the lexicon of uh, Islamic law, shroud them in the garb of Islamic law, hmm. anchor them in a known universe of rights and obligations, and say, "Look, all of these things that you all are doing, it's okay, but it's." okay up until a certain point. Uh, and so there's a already an assumed flexibility in all of these concepts. Maybe we can give our listeners uh, an example of what you mean, sort of uh, a, a, legal, uh, in, uh, a legal financial instrument uh, and how it was used by uh, merchants and, and middlemen operating uh, in the ocean, Indian Ocean world during the period of your study. Sure. So the, the book... Uh, Principally takes on the or or um, engages with the uh, the contract of what I call the the khiyar sale, which has nothing to do with cucumbers, <laughs> as much as you know one would want it to have something to do with cucumbers. I how many how many times have you had to <laughs> apologize to your audience about? Well, far too many times. And look, yes. I mean, I feel bad about it because I actually like cucumbers myself, uh, but but it has nothing to do with that. Instead, khiyar. Khiyar here means option. Um, mm -hmm. And the khiyar sale, uh, for those who are uh, steeped in uh, the history of Islamic contracting, the khiyar is originally uh, um, imagined as an option um, for, the, for the buyer to cancel the sale uh, mm -hmm. on the discovery of a defect in the, uh, in the purchase object, right? So you, you sell me uh, a microphone for it, Ten dollars, mm -hmm. uh, and usually the understanding is that well, I have three days uh, to figure out does this microphone do the work that I want it to do? Does it even work? Uh, and if I'm dissatisfied, I can bring it back to you, and uh, it's kind of like a, a warranty or something, something of right. that. Uh, well, you use the example of microphone, but obviously they weren't selling microphones. No, they weren't selling so microphones. Like, what's a more <laughs> right, right. concrete so, yeah, yeah. example? Let's talk, it's, let's, you're right. Let's talk concretely. Uh, the, the reason the reason I say that though is because actually in this world. Uh, the khiyar sale, the notion of khiyar, the notion of option is being expanded. Um, so what is the option in this, in this world? Uh, well, usually it's coupled with a property transaction. So let's talk concretely. You are an Indian merchant uh, in Zanzibar. And here I am, I'm a Omani farm owner, a plantation owner, whatever it is. I might, uh, I might be employing slaves, I might not be, most likely I am. I'm growing cloves. Uh, and you're interested in these cloves, and I'm interested in your money, actually, because I need money to get from one season to another, to sort of finance my consumption, finance production, buy maybe a little bit more land, things like that. What are the vehicles for doing that, for raising that sort of money? Well, I could sell you the plantation outright, but that wouldn't make sense. I wouldn't have it any more than, and you would own it. And as, the, as, a, as a financier, you're not interested in owning property anyway. Then there are a few different options. I could use the rahin, and people do use rahins, or the other vehicle that they use is the khiyar. So I'd sell you uh, the uh, the plantation, 
and I would reserve for myself the right to repurchase it in, say, six months. And uh, usually that's uh, the time period between the moment of the loan and the moment of the harvest. Uh, and so I can then um, service the loan uh, with the collected harvest, which then you deduct from the, the accounts. And then the understanding is that you always re-extend the loan. So the time horizon of these loans is always uh, on either end, constantly uh, extended into sort of the and indefinitely and across generations. And that way, uh, I've raised the money that I need and you've secured, essentially, because you've bought mm-hmm. you've bought the farm for me, you've bought the plantation, you've secured the supply of, uh, of cloves that you want. Uh, and meanwhile, uh, anything that you might collect from harvest in the interim, anything that, any value that you might generate from the plantation in the interim period, well, uh, it can't possibly count as riba or interest uh, because you own the thing, right? It's yours, mm-hmm. technically. Uh, I still live on it. I still uh, maintain possession of it. But you you own it until the time that I repurchase it from you. Well, this, uh, this, this, this is a little confusing for me. Uh, it sounds a little <laughs> bit like how modern corporations work. In fact, you know, you have, you have investors and you have a board and you have stocks and, and options and all of that stuff. And I'm not really sure how all of it works. It's, it's so I, I would suppose, I suppose the, the most, um, the clearest parallel for listeners today would be the mortgage, right? You don't, you don't technically, we don't own this house at all. You're, you know, I, I'm, I, run. <laughs> I don't, okay. I, I own my house, but only, uh, only, uh, uh, notionally, mm-hmm. um, the, um, the bank owns my house, mm-hmm. right? And I'm paying money to the bank for the right to purchase my home from the bank. Right. Um, and uh, although I, I maintain possession of the house, the bank doesn't possess it. The bank, I don't legally own my house. The bank legally owns it. So it's a relationship very similar to a mortgage, but it's being used for a different por- purpose than modern mortgages, which are about sort of transacting property. It's all about actually the production of the goods and financing the production. In this case, we talked about cloves. Absolutely. It's about it's about the value that the property is generating, not about possession of the the, the property itself. Cloves, um, we have, you know, the Khiar sales of coconuts. You, uh, there are comparable contracts for coffee. The, they do this for ivory. People actually also do it uh, in um, urban real estate on the East African coast and in South Arabia as well. And the understanding is then there's a, there's the rent that the property generates. So I can sell it to you. You can do, we can engage in a khiar sale in my house. And then I'll say, well, I'll, I'll rent it back from you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, so, uh, and, and that rent constitutes yeah. essentially interest on the loan. I mean, this example shows how there needs to be some sort of established, um, legal understanding, mutual obligation, uh, for, uh, this kind of arrangement to work, especially across the oceans. I mean, I'm still curious, like you gave the example of the clove plantation. So does the financier does does the financier in theory also temporarily take possession of say the slaves who work on that plantation? Do they belong, do they belong to the agricultural land, so to speak, and whoever finances it or is that separate? Is that still remaining in the possession of uh, the agriculturalist? Yeah. The, I mean, the question of slavery is, is obviously an important one. Who is doing the work of producing the value on that right. land and what, what's their place within the transaction? And often the slaves are subsumed into uh, into the land itself, and so when transactions on a, in a, in a, with a 
involving a plantation, they'll say the and he sells the 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 plantation and they use the the Swahili term shamba, which is also the the Omani term for for these sorts of things shamba, um, and all that appertains to it, and you know that by and the, that assumes uh, or subsumes slaves as well. Some of them make very clear that slaves are a part of the transaction. They'll say, he does that and 150 slaves. Um, but that's the idiosyncrasies of uh, of the individual document. Sometimes we see this, sometimes we don't. Look, I, I don't want us to, to get caught up, too caught up in the technicalities of these documents and what these transactions uh, are meant to do um, in terms of the sort of the workings of finance in the Indian Ocean. That's that's a part of the story, and it's an important part of the story, of course. But really, the more interesting part of the story is what this tells us about how law works in the Indian Ocean world, how the Islamic law works in the Indian Ocean world, who is responsible for creating, uh, quote-unquote, or shaping Islamic law in the Indian Ocean. Uh, and uh, looking at these sorts of transactions tells us that actually Islamic law, uh, insofar as one can think of a sort of a phenomenon called Islamic law, people who just call it law, uh, is the work of uh, merchants, um, of planters, of plantation owners. Uh, and insofar as we can think of legal actors, um, we actually shouldn't be thinking about jurists as the principal actors uh, or the sort of the, the principal protagonists in, in the law story. Um, scribes, these uh, kutab, who are drawing up these documents, are drawing on the lexicon of Islamic law and using it to give shape to these transactions around them and are bouncing these ideas and these warqas off of qadis uh, and off of muftis who are then doing the work of uh, spinning it and clothing it and reclothing it so mm -hmm. that it has a place in the sort of Muslim legal episteme. Um, and so, I mean, principally, I want to say that that's the story. And when you think about, well, how do then, how do we get then from the plantations of Zanzibar to the date farms of Oman to the pearl banks of Bahrain to the marketplaces of India? It's through the travels of these documents, through the circulations of these documents, right? As these documents circulate, all of these different actors are conjured up in that circulation, right? And as the document shifts from one place to another. There are uh, there's a world uh, that that sort of travels alongside it. It's not just the document and the rights and obligations, but it's all of those discussions surrounding what law can be uh, that that come alongside it. And so then the question that gets posed to to muftis, for example, is, you know, we know of uh, the rulings on dates, for example, but what about uh, mangoes? Does the ruling for dates extend to mangoes? And he says, yes, of course it extends to mangoes. Why wouldn't it extend to mangoes? Uh, and so immediately we see one form of property being transposed onto another, creating the possibility for this sort of regional arena to, to emerge. And so the picture we've got here is, you know, this image of the Indian Ocean world, uh, merchants, financiers, planters, various actors, state actors and, and actual legal jurors being somewhat um, more marginal in the conversation than we would normally think when we're talking about Islamic law, but all these different actors uh, connected uh, across a space um, who are able to um, facilitate new economic relationships uh, through these 
uh, emerging concepts, um, agreed upon definitions in, in terms of exchange, right? Uh, and, and sort of they've created a, a financial system uh, that works in the Indian Ocean. But what happens when that financial system, being that it is part of the world economy, being that uh, cloves and dates, slaves, ivory, all these things are being traded uh, across the world. What happens when uh, this financial system encounters another financial system, encounters, uh, runs up against uh, like Western uh, forms of exchange uh, and uh, legal categories? Yeah, that's a terrific question. And that's principally the, the second half of the book takes that on. Um, the question of well, what happens to this world in the face of a growing uh, British Indian Empire in the Indian Ocean? And and here we have to make a distinction between the British Empire, global British Empire, and the, and British India, which is its own empire in the Indian Ocean. Uh, and um, and what we see is uh, uh, at particular junctures, and specifically in the sort of third quarter of the nineteenth century, um, uh, with a sort of economic downturn. Um, there's a bit of a panic amongst these Indian merchants uh, and an eagerness to find ways to recoup their investment. And then they turn to uh, the uh, British consuls in the area to help them. And then this is the moment in which these transactions get drawn into British courtrooms. And then you have a whole range of different actors who come and make claims about what these contracts can do. Uh, and it's a much sort of longer and more complicated history than we have time to talk about here. But Principally, the point that I make here is is this. The same way as when we talked about Islamic law uh, and these forms of contracts, how we had to disaggregate the notion of Islamic law and disaggregate the notion of the Omani Empire into all of these component pieces and all of these different uh, juridical actors and economic actors and talk about how they shape what law is. Same, we do that. We have to do the same for the British Empire um, and talk about the. Uh, the very sort of low-level actors who are doing the work of imperial law. And it turns out, in this case, it's actually lawyers from British India, Indian lawyers who are coming into East Africa uh, and South Arabia and who are making claims about the place of imperial law or the the, the lack of a place for imperial law in, in, um, in these different uh, uh, sort of Indian Ocean sort of frontier areas. And they are mobilizing all sorts of different legal resources from... Uh, case law in India to uh, Indian statute, but then also Anglo-Indian law and readings of uh, fiqh texts directly, sort of fiqh produced in East Africa and uh, and South Arabia to make claims about what these contracts are supposed to do, and more broadly, what sort of uh, Islamic law is supposed to do in uh, in a modern economy, and so. I'd say principally this is the 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 thrust of the book is that when we write these histories of law, uh, imperial law, Islamic law, whatever it is, um, we can't take any of these uh, notions of law as given actually, uh, and what we have to do is is break them down into all of these different parts and see how actually these different actors and bits of paper and ideas are assembled along the way. Uh, to make this thing that we call law. Um, and that law is not a phenomenon. Uh, law is not a, uh, a uh, yeah, phenomenon, I suppose. Law is a process. 
We're talking to Fahad Bishara about his new book, A Sea of Debt, Law and Economic Life in the Western Indian Ocean, 1780 to 1950. That's out last year from Cambridge University Press. Uh, We've got a little more to talk about, but first we're going to take another break uh, for music and then come back with our conversation. Stay tuned. Do you use health supplements that have never been scientifically tested? Do you collect commemorative gold coins to save for retirement? Do you subscribe to an email marketing service to send daily life updates to friends and family? If so, the sponsors of your favorite podcasts might be getting to you. At Ottoman History Podcast, we have no sponsors or affiliation, which is why you never hear advertisements in our episodes. Since 2011, our production has been supported entirely by the energy and resources of our Ottoman History Podcast team. But now, for the first time ever, you, the listener, can become part of the production. Click the link to our Patreon account at the top of ottomanhistorypodcast.com to learn about becoming an Ottoman History Podcast patron. You can pledge as little as a dollar a month and cancel any time. We make sure to acknowledge our supporters on the air. And so in this episode, I'd like to send a special shout out to OHP fan Bessiana Bella for becoming one of our first patrons. I'd also like to acknowledge Professor Jamil Aydin from University of North Carolina, who is pledged as a faculty patron. Professor Aydin is a former guest, and you can find our interview with him about his book, The Idea of the Muslim World, on our website. We're especially grateful to our former contributors who support our program and remain invested in it. And we invite university faculty everywhere who use our site in the classroom to consider becoming faculty patrons as well. You'll not only help feature the work of graduate students who appear on the program as hosts and guests, you'll also help keep Ottoman History Podcast free and available to undergraduate students throughout the world. And now, without any sense of irony, we return to our conversation about the history of Islamic law, commerce, and capitalism in the Indian Ocean. Welcome back to Ottoman History Podcast. Chris Grayton here with Fahad Bishara. We're talking about his book, A Sea of Debt, and this conversation about Islamic law and commerce in the Indian Ocean. You know, Fahad, we started out saying that your work is part of a historiographical trend to look beyond um, the, the European empires and the British Empire in particular, sort of dominating the story of the Indian Ocean. And, and where we've ended up is actually on the other side of the story with uh, local actors rooted in, you know, an Islamic legal system uh, of exchange are actually uh, becoming part of the story of the emergence of global capitalism um, that is associated with those uh, that that era of high imperialism as well. I guess the the last question uh, we should ask is uh, what. Uh, Islamic cryptocurrency should all our listeners be out there buying? <laughs> Sharia coin. <laughs> I don't know if that exists yet, but that's a certainly... No, my question is actually like, what do we make of this? Like, not necessarily, you know, everyone has a different association with the rise of global capitalism. Is it good? Is it bad? That's not That's not really what we're talking about here. Uh, but how do we uh, make sense of the the importance of this historical development and reframing things, you know, in our present? Yeah, no, I, I mean, I appreciate the question and uh, you're forcing me to articulate things that actually never made it into the book itself. Uh, as it turns out with these things, you know, it's only when you have space away uh, mm-hmm. from a project um, that you're able to understand what you really meant to say. Uh, unfortunately, that never made it in print. Uh, there's more work for me to do in the future. But um, look, part of the, the, the impulse behind the project 
is to to write uh, about what a um, a history of uh, Muslim uh, economic thinking and Muslim economic practice uh, looks like uh, in in the 19th century Indian Ocean, mm-hmm. right? Uh, what what uh, a more sort of dynamic account of that can look like. Um, now that I have a bit of space away from it, and I'm thinking about other projects as well, uh, it becomes clearer to me that what I'm writing about here um, is the world of the the bazaar in the Indian Ocean, the sort of the the sort of non-European, for for lack of a better sort of uh, conceptualization, non-European marketplace, one that's loosely grounded in the sort of Islamic legal vocabulary, and but we might think of as a much broader uh, concept, a sort of a metonym for all the sorts of different transactions that we see taking place around the Islamic world. And these histories, the histories of the bazaar uh, at any given place, are always entangled in other uh, in other economic systems and in other uh, in other trajectories, and so the history that I've given here in this book is one that by the time we get to the end of the book, it's looking a lot more like uh, European. These look a lot more like European financial instruments, or at least people are thinking about these alongside one another. What does that mean? Um, what are the implications for that? Well, uh, one can take this as an episode, then, right? Uh, and we can then go much further back in time and think about. What an economic history of the Islamic world that takes um, Islamic law seriously as a dynamic force rather than mm-hmm. a sort of uh, a, a monolithic, uh, stale, sort of uh, stagnant uh, set of institutions. What a, a dynamic history of Islamic law and economic life looks like um, and the ways in which it's sort of tangled up in histories across the Mediterranean, histories across the Indian Ocean, across the Sahara, and all of the frontiers of the Muslim world beyond the Muslim heartlands of, you know, Istanbul, Cairo, Beirut, whatever it is. Uh, I don't know if Beirut counts as a Muslim heartland, let's say Damascus. But one can also then move forward in time. And uh, this is something I hint at at the end of the book. It's, uh, you know, we have uh, um, lots of accounts of modern Islamic banking and Islamic finance um, that's basically a lot of uh, very anxious uh, uh, sort of moralizing, hand-wringing about how this is just a copy of Western finance and a, a poor copy of Western finance. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that I disagree with that, but what I'm saying is that that actually uh, flattens the longer history of uh, sort of the boundary between Islamic law and economic life that Islamic finance might actually come out of. And so at what point did we ever even have a pure Islamic legal institutions in the world of commerce. I would argue that we never actually had that, right? That they were always entangled in other financial forms. Um, They were always changing uh, and always looking forward uh, and looking backward at the same time. And we might think of Islamic finance today as as doing that. And so, uh, in a sense, this captures one moment in a, a constantly sort of moving ocean of uh, Islamic law and economic history, but to say that we might be able to write an alternative genealogy of Islamic finance, or also uh, a um, a dynamic history, economic history of the Islamic world that can exist alongside um, the work of, say, uh, you know, uh, Fernand Braudel. Uh, on civilization and capitalism and uh, the rest of the global histories of capitalism that are fundamentally just sort of Europe and the world histories. I mean, on one hand, your study kind of 
shows that long before the, as you say, more recent creation of a notion of Islamic finance that may or may not be justly um, characterized as derivative from Western forms of finance, there was a much longer history of people doing business and using uh, Islamic forms of exchange uh, as a means of, of doing that business. And you've certainly brought that to light. But I think it also highlights, you know, important aspects of the history of capitalism that are, that are coming out, coming to light these days, showing how capital and capitalism works through differentiated uh, local systems by necessity, that it, rather than it being rooted in a particular uh, cultural trajectory, actually like sort of has to be hybrid uh, in a way. Yeah, absolutely. Look, the history of capitalism is always, from my perspective, a history of how capital and its different forms are vernacularized, uh, and uh, and one might uh, one might uh, productively uh, think about the the bazaar um, in its broadest and most capacious sense as a site in which these processes of vernacularization uh, take place, but also a, a sort of proactive site of capitalist and imperialist expansion uh, as well. And this is one of the many sort of future projects that uh, I'm, I'm sort of laying the groundwork for. So for your listeners, don't, uh, don't take it up. I'm already doing that work, okay? <laughs> <laughs> stay put and stay tuned. And I, just in, in this short conversation, you know, we've really touched on so many aspects of the history of the Indian Ocean world, not just law and economy. We talked a little bit about, you know, political rivals to the European empires and the Omanis. We've talked about all the different um, agricultural production in the region. We touched on slavery. Uh, we touched on uh, the movement of peoples and translations. A lot of different uh, important topics in the historiography of the Indian Ocean world. And Fahad, I really appreciate you coming on the program, uh, sharing uh, your thoughts uh, on the topic, and of course, talking to us about your book. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much, Chris. I want to thank our listeners for tuning in. I remind them to please check out Fahad Bishar's book, A Sea of Debt, uh, out from Cambridge University Press, uh, as well as some of the other uh, works mentioned in this podcast, which you can find listed in the bibliography on our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com. That's all for this episode. Join us next time in another installment of Ottoman History Podcast. <laughs>